turn to Philippians chapter 4. And while you're turning there, while you're turning to Philippians chapter 4, I was asked you the question, what would be the one thing you would prioritize in your quest for holiness? It says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, to pursue peace with all men and the holiness or the sanctification without which no man will see the Lord. And you might think, well, let's see, if I really want to be holy, um, I guess uh, um, I would need a sanctified grit from God to put to death the deeds of the body. Yeah, that'd be good. I need that separation principle from the world. He who loves the world, the love of the Father is not any. First John chapter four. Yeah, I need that. I would need that kind of grit to be able to fight Apollyon and take on the devil, the world, the flesh, the devil. That makes sense. These are the things we're called to overcome. You see the word overcomer and overcoming in the book of Revelation. That would be something that'd be pretty important. But according to First Timothy chapter six, Paul makes a statement talking about how um, godliness and the and what makes for godliness. He talks about contentment. You add contentment to godliness, it makes godliness with great gain. He says, <clears throat> contentment. Wow. Well, that'd be really part of the, the repertoire of armament I pull out in my sanctification, without which no man will see the Lord. Contentment. Okay, that seems like kind of a you know, pocket knife maybe compared to some of these other, you know, weapons I'm going to need to fight the fight. But in Philippians chapter four, starting in verse 10, we're going to read through verse 20. He deals with this subject of contentment. And why is that so important? Well, it fits in with the broader context of chapter four, which is what? The secure mind. Remember, the spiritual mind was in chapter three, which leads to the secure mind. So the outward, inward evidence that this person basically that Paul is addressing in Philippians, the whole Philippian church that he wants them to be like is his single mind in chapter one, the submissive mind in chapter two. And you dig and you drill deeper, the spiritual mind that counts all things as lost in order to have Christ, where you can value Christ over all things. It leads to the secure mind. And we saw last week, this whole idea of the characteristics of the secure mind was to be at peace with what may come. To not have anxiety. Now we're going to look at to be at peace with what may go <laughs> in this section here when it deals with contentment. And he says in verse 10, but I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Getting back to the money that they had sent to him. Remember in chapter one. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Now he's going to build upon this. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. This was the first sermon I ever preached in Bentley. It was this passage right here. Learning the secret of contentment. And this, this word secret is also one of those mystery religion words back then in the first century. Secret. One of those initiatives, initiates that comes in. We're going to give them the, the secret handshake and things of this sort. They're now part of the group kind of thing. Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content. So on one hand, this word for learned that he talks about 
in uh, verse 11, and he talks about this whole idea of, in verse 12, secret instruction, uh, initiation of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And notice how it gives way into verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. And you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit, which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, fragrant aroma and acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. <clears throat> the prosperity gospel is premised on two pernicious evil errors. The first error is that you have the right to be privileged. You have that right. You're a child of God. So since you're a child of God and you have that right, you need to act on that right. We saw, heard a little bit about this yesterday, but it's also premised on Deuteronomy 28, 11, where God promises to bless the people in the land. You do this and you do that. And you do these things for me. I'm going to prosper you in the land and cause you to grow and have this increase and that increase. And so the logical deduction from that is that, well, geez, well, since we're supposed to have all these things, then it's our right to have those things, which means you need to pursue those things. Which brings in the second error is that if you don't have them, it's because you have little faith. You ought to be like me with my Learjet. See, I've got a lot of faith. And so that's why I got a lot of things. So he has the most toys. It's not just wins, as it says in the culture, but it's the most holy. I've learned how to tap into this prosperity thing. And of course, that appeals to the carnal mind. It appeals to, to people who want those kind of things. You send money to me, I can promise you, you know, God's going to do this for you. And they'll quote these passages up here. My God shall supply all your needs because you're doing this for me. God's going to do this for you. God's going to increase it tenfold for you and things of this sort. And so that kind of prosperity preaching runs counter to this little section here where he talks about being content. It runs counter to John the Baptist's advice to his disciples in Luke chapter three, where he tells the soldiers even, you know, don't do this with people. Don't do that. Be content with your wages. This whole idea of contentment accompanying holiness and sanctification so that it propels it forward. This prosperity kind of thinking and gospel will run counter than to sanctification and holiness. And you need to recognize that. Now, we're not saying the opposite would be true. Let's, you know, <laughs> let's go into poverty and worship poverty as if poverty is the answer. That's not a solution to anything. So we really need to kind of get our minds around this whole idea of what does it mean to be content? 
always good when you're in a sermon and you're preaching on a subject matter that you define your subject. Don't expect people, lesson one for our teaching class, right? <laughs> that they understand what you understand. And if it's a blur for you, it's a fog for them. Trust me. <clears throat> so it's incumbent upon me to instruct, not for you to figure me out. It's on the giver, not the receiver. So what does it mean to be content? The Greek word basically has to do with this. Almost sounds like content. It means to be contained. It basically means self-sufficient. The Stoic philosophers back in the first century would use the word for contentment and say that I'm self-sufficient, I'm self-contained. Well, it's not too far off the idea where Paul's running from in here, except that he says in Christ, I'm self-contained. And you see that a person who's contented, another good synonym for that word for word association kind of thing, is the word satisfaction. I'm satisfied. Um self-contained now why is that attitude a bonus for godliness go oh, put yourself in the opposite situation look at those people in the wilderness in the old testament these were people who murmured and complained didn't he talk about that to the philippians in chapter two where he says in verse 14 do all things without grumbling or disputing that's not what you do when you're content that doesn't further godliness. Our society is rife with nothing but discontent. Now, you're going to see three basic aspects of or characteristics. And this is the subject matter of the, of the message of the spiritual resources that you have. Three of them in this section. I don't make them up. Get them from the text. This is how you preach the text. That give rise to contentment for the Christian, which then gives rise to holiness without which no man comes to the Lord. So it's very, very important that you practice contentment. And if you have a secure mind, anxious for nothing, flip side of that, you'll be content in everything that God has for you. And that's the first thing we recognize right off the bat. Like Wearsby has a nice little breakdown of this. He says, the first one is the overruling providence of God. You see this in, in verse 10, and 11, but I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern, concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. And then he says, notice, not that I speak from want or lack, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I'm in. Now, he's going to elaborate on whatever circumstance I am. I'm in because he says what in the next verse in verse 12? I know how to get along with humble means. Get along means to be content. And also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of being filled, going hungry, having abundance, suffering need. So here's this, this first aspect of contentment. Because remember, contentment is we're saying it's self-containment or self-sufficiency, but really it's Christ-sufficiency for us as, as Christians. What it's not is complacency. You know what it means to be complacent. Or apathetic. Or fatalistic. You have an, I'm calling that contentment. That's not contentment. You don't let your mind drift and call that contentment. Oh, no, it's fully engaged. When you're going through this right here, and this first point here is this overruling providence of God, 
is that you're able to say, I accept all things. I can sing 298 in the red. Some through the water, some through the floods, some through the fire, but all through the blood. Notice, I understand that God puts different people in different situations and different circumstances. Did everybody go through the 2016 flood? No, in here. Some did. Somebody came up to the doorstep and didn't get in. Some didn't. They missed them by a mile. Others completely got washed out. Some, 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 some. And then all of a sudden, those who didn't get any flood, maybe two years later, got a totally different trial. And we didn't get touched. And so as we, we see people like a baby Michael and the LeBlancs going through a, you know, a horrendous trial and you're on the outside looking in, praying for them, praying for strength, praying for contentment. See, contentment doesn't mean, okay, case okay, sarah, sarah. In other words, I accept all things, which means I'm happy with all things. Not necessarily. Paul's in a Roman jail. Paul's with, you know, tied to a Roman guard. He can look at things and call things as they are and says, this is evil. This is wrong. But he says, you know, but I'm content with the providences of God. Now notice, it's being content with the providences of God. How is providence different than sovereignty? What's the providence of God and the sovereignty of Sovereignty of God is God's governorship over all things. He rules and reigns over all things, from the devil to the molecules to everything. He rules and reigns, controls all things. That's what it means when you talk about the sovereignty of God. Complete, raw power of God ruling and reigning overall, as head over all things. Got it. Makes sense. Providence comes from this word pro before in the dense idea of video to see, to see before. It means to see to it before. In other words, um, to provide before. Providence has to do with provision, has to do with not just sovereignty in the controlling factor. It has to do with the goodness of God and providing a way. So we talk about the providence of God. This is what you find here in verse 12. I know how to get along. There's your providence. Or if you remember, what was that passage that Paul used when he was talking to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12 and verse uh, 9 and 10. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for powers perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content. Whoa, content. I thought he was just praying three times to get this storm removed from him. Finds out it's a demon. What's this contentment thing coming out? And that's where the power is. That's where the sanctification is going to get its grit to be able to walk in holiness. It comes from the engine room of contentment. And the engine room of contentment is fired up with three pistons. And the first one is this providence of God. As Christians, you need to understand providentially, not just sovereignly, providentially, God's put you here to provide something for you, provide something of a display of his glory, and to provide something for all of us. There's provisions going around for all kinds of people, but especially for you when you're in the waters or in the flood or in the fire. That, as Paul says, I can get along. 
I can do that. I've learned that secret of getting along. And what's that secret? It just boils down to basic theology. It's not just the sovereignty of God as much as it's the provisions of God. And it's an unfailing and an overruling God in his providence to give us these things. I'm not envious of what someone else might have. Not. Shouldn't be. It's what it means to be content, right? It's a peaceful disposition that can worship in the midst of trials. So when I'm in prosperity, I say, thank you, Lord. When I'm in need, I say, thank you that I don't have. Because whatever, if I was supposed to have, I'd have it. And by me not having it, it's better for me not to have than to have. Because things are being prevented from attacking me, maybe from a worldly perspective to, to lure my heart away or something might be of some other whatever ilk that could bring me down. So if I don't have something right now, it's because I don't need it right now. Now, who says that? Somebody who's learned contentment, learned it. Let me tell you something, boys. They're going to teach you contentment as you grow older. All the kiddos in here, parents are seeking to teach you contentment. You need to be thankful for what you have. Yeah, but he's got. And see, all of a sudden you hear the discontent arise. And we need to teach them what. It's okay not to have. Yeah, but it's just not fair. It's very fair. And so as you learn contentment and you transfer that to your children and grandchildren, you have to teach them those life lessons from your own great reservoir of contentment, right? That you've gotten from God and the overriding providence that he's given you. How are they going to learn from mom and dad if mom and dad are constantly discontent, trying to live and catch up with the Joneses and the Smiths in the world? Can't do that. Why do you ever say grace at the, at the table? You're basically saying thank you for our food. We're content with what you have given us, Lord. Thank you for providing for us. Yeah, but it's just a bowl of cereal. Just a bowl of cereal. Not everybody has one. And if God wants to have more, we'd have it. And so when you hear the discontentment come out of the children's heart, many times that's a learned reflex that they hear mom and dad say things and they pick up on the discontentment from mom. Remember the old passage in Exodus 20, the sins of the father, the third, fourth generation. That, that kind of theology, bad theology, it's caught, not taught. You're not sitting down with them and teaching them how to practice idolatry or practice discontentment. They learn that. Think about it. Those people in the wilderness, they died in the wilderness, according to Hebrews 3 and 4. They, they found no rest in the wilderness. But you had those people that did. They spied out the land, and what did they say? It's a great land. They brought back, you know, the grapes of Eshkel, things of this sort. And then you had 10 spies, totally discontent with the land. Nothing but giants in the land. We bring our children to that. We're, going to, we're setting them ourselves up and them to be killed. And they would grumble. They would murmur when they didn't have water, when they didn't have food. And God gave them manna, even gave them, you know, meat and things of this sort. There was always something. The water, the glass was always half empty to them. Let me tell you something. You want to lose friends fast? Always be discontent around it. Always complain around it. Nobody wants to listen to you whine. Hate to break the news to your kids. Quit it. Quit the whining. 
can get around pastors and they, they whine. Whine about a congregation, whine about them, their salary, whine about resources they don't have. Why? It's like, stop. Why would you do that? What good is that? And why do you think they want to hear that? Drink that vinegar coming out of your mouth. They don't want to hear that. Think before you whine or you complain. Well, I'm just, I'm just what? I'm just venting. Venting. Nice way of saying I'm grumbling and murmuring. I should be giving thanks and, and saying, thank you, Lord. This is what you have given me. And I need to learn and grow, but I just don't have that grace right now. And so what comes out of my mouth and I don't have grace is what? Whining and grumbling and con discontentment. Now, but Paul, he comes and he says this, I've learned. I hit the guy with thorn in the flesh because he writes this letter after he wrote 2 Corinthians. He learned. Well content with my weaknesses then. Power is going to be perfected in my weaknesses then. I'm well content with my weaknesses. And that's, that, you know, how you tell that to the LeBlancs, to be content in a situation like that. And let me, let me tell you, that's on the front burner with God with them. You're going to have to be content with me. You're going to be content with my plans for you. Don't look, uh -uh, don't look to that guy in the next lane. Uh -huh. That's right. He's got a straight shot. You got a steeplechase in your lane. You got potholes. You got speed control bumps. You got branches across your lane. Yeah, but what about that guy, Lord? Remember Peter with John? Lord, don't you? Mary's not helping me in the kitchen. Don't you be concerned? Look, I'm looking at her, looking at me. I'm working. She's sitting. What about it, Mary? What about it, Martha? I want her sitting here. What about it? It's just not fair. And so what do you do? You want. And there's discontentment. Now, discontentment, if contentment aids in holiness, guess what aids in apostasy? Discontentment. Reprobation. That's how those people fell in the wilderness. This is why you don't want to go down that road. So the first thing we see here, and we see it in, in verse 11 and 12 here, he's learned this to be content. I can accept all things. In other words, he believes I have a providence controlling God. If you want to learn contentment, you have to be willing to accept your lot in life where you're at. And it doesn't mean I don't, I can't try to improve or whatever, but I have to accept it and worship within it. Now, a lot of you have experienced loss, the loss of a spouse, loss of a father, loss of a mother, loss of a child. That's a hard providence to accept. But that first requirement of contentment is you have to be able to, to bend the knee and be able to say, Lord, like Christ, not my will, but yours be done. I want to do your will with this providence. Jesus Christ is going to take the wrath of God. Can you imagine taking the wrath of God for one person, let alone all of his people? Never knew of any day of separation from his father's love. And in that moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, he gets a sneak peek, a trailer of the movie that's going to be played in a few hours of what it's going to look like. And his soul shrinks back in horror and he begins to sweat drops of blood because of your sins. He saw your sins. And that's how he reacted to it. 
with chewing bubble gum saying, yeah, he can handle this. I'm good with this. This is a man. Christ the man. Second person of the Trinity. The second person of the Trinity wouldn't undergo on the cross and was never going to die and can never die. God can't die. But Christ the man, as he had come, oh yeah, he's going to undergo it with full strength. And he's going to drink every drop of that cup. That's his father's will. Can you imagine you knowing that ahead of time? It's almost so far out there, we can't even shoulder it or begin to think in, in terms of the weight of that. But he accepts it. Not my will, but thine be done. That's the first, first mark of having a contented soul. Jesus is building an armament of contentment in the garden of Gethsemane. The first one is the overruling providence of God. Angel comes and strengthens him. I was talking to Gary some last night about that. What if that angel says to Jesus in the garden to strengthen him? What would he have said? What verse would he have quoted, maybe? How would he have strengthened him to go forward <clears throat> to do these things? I mean, angels learn like us, it says in First Peter. What would he have said? What would you have said? We know three guys sleeping on the watch with him. They're not saying anything except snoring. They're not saying anything. But what would you have said to strengthen him? How could I have strengthened him? Because he's going to be dying for my sins. He's going to be paying my debt. But, but Christ builds this contentment. First and foremost, the first building block is you build it on the providence of God. Now, the second thing you do, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Notice how the providence is over ruling providence of God over all things, whether you're, you know, Joseph, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. God put me here to save many people's lives. And he sees these things and notice how he responds to that. He wasn't building up years of bitterness toward his brothers. That bitterness is the anger pill you swallow and think it's going to kill them. It's going to just kill you. No, i got to let this go. God, God is behind this. God has brought me to this place. God has put evil people in my lives or evil events or evil circumstances. He's taking these things out of my life. Okay, he's taking them out of your life. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do with the God who took them out of your life? Fish or cut bait? Serve him or be like Job's wife and say, curse God and die? What's it going to be? you got a fork in the road here. Sometimes you need to tell people that. Kind of slap them around a little bit into reality and say, you've got to do something with God right now. Quit putting him on the black back burner and pretending he's not there and going around, crying in your beer, sulking, being depressed, being angry all the time. I'm angry, I'm angry, I'm angry. God took something from me. God took something from me. Something I love. Took it, took it, took it, took it. Stop it. Either come out and hate him or bow your knee and serve him. But let's get it on the front. Let's get it on the table. Why do you think it was wrong for God to take something from you? Let's talk about it. Oh, you think you own that. Well, let's talk about that. When did you own that person? When did you have voting rights on the length of, of life that this person might have? When was that ever asked about you, Job? Do you know how to do these things over here in the animal world? Over here in the constellations in the sky? Over here in the, the very... Waters, waterways of, of the earth? I mean, if you do, please inform me about it because I know how to do them. But undoubtedly, you've got all this knowledge about how I should run the world, how I should run your life. 
how I should give you things and take things out on my on your schedule. Then I need to somehow find out what that is and bow to it as God. Can you please inform me of these things? See how sarcastic it can get? See how humbling it can get? When you really start pushing it and putting it on the, on the forefront and you start realizing, well, yeah, I mean, I don't, <clears throat> I don't have that kind of control. Yeah, you don't. And I didn't bring him into existence. Yeah, you didn't. I did. And I guess you could have given that person to somebody else. Yeah, and I didn't. I gave them to you to enjoy, and you did. And now you're trying to tell me, the creator of all potteries, of all human flesh, exactly what I'm supposed to do with what I give you. Who sets the, the parameters on a baby Madeline? Who does that? God does that. He even tells Moses that. Who gives speech to men? I do. I can make you speak to, to Moses. I mean, to Pharaoh. Don't tell me I can't do these things. You see, as you get swamped by that sovereignty and that power of God having the ruling and the rights to do these things, it should lead to that second one, this unfailing power of God. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's what you want to teach your kids. That's the second building block when it comes to contentment. You realize I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's his strength. Now, this whole passage here it gets used in all kinds of different contexts, right? Mm -hmm. The power team, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can tear up, you know, telephone books and things of this sort. It's not meant for that. It's meant in this context. Doing all things through, I can do. I can be content in whatever circumstance I'm in. You know why? It's the power of God giving me that contentment. See, it's that, if it's that same kind of fear I should have that he works in me to will and to work for his good pleasure, I'm told in the second chapter, here it is in the secure mind coming out in the realm of contentment. It's his power that's going to be on display. When people see the power of God in your life, let me tell you what we see. I don't look at somebody who can tear a telephone book in half. Power God. Wow, look at him. He's casting out demons. Child's play compared to watching your disposition of contentment. Watching what comes out of your mouth. Like, <clears throat> like Job says, naked I came into the world, naked I'll go out. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But I can see you worship. When life gets sliced pretty thin, let me tell you something. I'm seeing the power of God on full display. I don't need to go to Grand Canyon to see the power of God in creation or Niagara Falls where everybody goes because that's what you see with your eyes. And when you see with your spiritual heart and you realize, who does that? Who, who praises and worships God in the midst of loss? Because the first rule, as Jeremiah Burroughs says in the rare jewel of Christian contentment in his book that he wrote, is that contentment in the kingdom of God comes by subtraction, not addition. The world, it comes by addition. Man, if I can just win that lottery, if I can get that addition into my life, cool, then I'll be content. God says, you're going to follow me. You're going to find contentment. I, the secret is going to be through subtraction, not addition. You're going to learn some different math when you get in the kingdom of God. To him who has, more shall be given. Tim, who doesn't have, even what he doesn't have is going to be taken away from him. What kind of math is that? Yep, that's the kingdom of God. That's the law of prosperity, production, productivity in the kingdom of God. The rich get richer and the poor get poor. Who does that? God. 
I don't want some of that contentment. I want to be content with my grace. We come through subtraction. He's going to take away things from you. So take away things from you, and you're going to realize when he takes them away, your life didn't consist in it. <clears throat> if God takes my life, you're going to learn quick. You don't need me as your pastor. You don't need me as your bridge. You don't need me as your husband. You don't need me as your dad. He's gone. You don't need, by way of survival in life, me. You're going to learn that. That's just how it is. Now, in the moment, it's going to be painful. I get that. But that's contentment comes from subtraction. He takes away, and then all of a sudden, he replaces his presence, and you realize, wow, that's power. A person can praise the Lord and worship the Lord in the midst of that. That's not pious mumbo-jumbo. That's just not positive thinking like the world would have. Just got to keep thinking positively. I just got to keep thinking positively. What's that? That's bunk. No, I believe in the truth here. This is God. He's ruling and reigning. This providence he's given to me at this moment. And he's going to give me power in that moment. What kind of power? A contentment in that moment. So not only that, I, you know, I can accept all things, but I have the power to do what? I can do all things. We don't have to turn around and say, well, you know, dad would want us to go on. Christ wants you to go on. And go on. Yeah, we're going to go on all right. We're going to go on. We'll carry the cross and we're going to go forward. And we're going to tear down the, the strongholds of the evil. And you know where I'm at. Great. Bear me. Move on. So you know, use your little pious phrase. You know, dad, if dad would come back, you know, he'd kick your butt for just thinking that's like, I get all of that. But it's like, that's not going to be the motivator. Why is dad the, the focal point? Christ is the focal point. He's your life. He's your power. He's put you in this providence and you're going to have that providence. And your contentment is going to show. Like in the old saying, they say, oh, excuse me, ma'am, your slip is showing. Yeah, your real innards showing your heart where it's at. That's why we don't mourn like those who have no hope. It's sad. It's hard. It's difficult. But contentment comes from subtraction. And what people really see, it's not we see the providence of God, but they see the power of God. They see you in full power of being able to do what? I have a power producing God in my life. I am moving forward, not just, well, I'm going to bite the bullet and I'm going to take one. And I get it. Sometimes it's tough. Sometimes you can only take baby steps when there's a, a difficult time. I'm not, I can't determine what you should and shouldn't do and how you should process grief. We talked about that last Wednesday night. How do you process that? How do you encourage somebody else who's going through a grieving time? You know what I say to LeBlanc? Remember, what was it, Philip? Telling us him and Christy were going to go over there last Thursday night and, and visit with them. In the back of my mind, I'm saying, you know, honestly, better you than me. Because I don't, I mean, who wants to be around someone where you don't know what to say? How do you enter in into their pain? And at the same time, you go over there, you're going to get the lesson. You're going to see power of God on full display, full throng. And you're going to go back and go, wow, I did it when I went to Jay's house. They lost Natalie. I'll never forget that theological lesson in the back porch. Got four years of seminary in an afternoon. Walked away, got my car crying because I thought I knew God. 
I got introduced to him in a packed porch in the Shenandoah neighborhood. Well, I read Pink's book. I know all about sovereignty of God. <laughs> right? I saw the power of God that day. But if you keep on going in our little section as he talks to the, you know, Philippians, what else does he say? <clears throat> he also says he not only accepts all things, I can do all things, but he says, I have all things. I really have all things. But doesn't he say that where he talks about, first of all, he says in verse 17, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit, which increases your account. Here's this investment that they have for profit, because now he's going to talk about that same thing that they did in verse 18 about the sacrifice that they have for worship. Because this is really what it is. It's an investment that's going to profit you, but it's also a sacrifice that worships God. It's this fragrant aroma. But notice what he says when he talks about himself, though, in verse 18, which is our last building block. We've got the providence of God. We've got the power of God. Now we've got this whole idea that he has this possession from God. Or this, we would say, the promise of God, as he says, but I have received everything in full, verse 18, and have an abundance and I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus, which you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So he flips it and gives to them, verse 19, and my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. I have received everything in full. I remember when we first started off in the ministry, me and Becky, we weren't getting hardly any money. We didn't have salary to have anything, with just whatever people would give. And we just living on a shoestring when people would look at it. We couldn't even get a loan for a house, start a house, because we did, we weren't making enough money. And I'll never forget, we were in that situation, hardly having any money. And I'll never forget, God brought people to us with needs, and we gave to them. And God would remind us, saying, what are you giving to them, Mark? You're given out of your abundance. Notice, you're given to them. You're the head, not the tail. You're giving. Giving. And how much money do you have there? Uh, just a couple of loaves and some fishes. You keep on giving. Keep on giving. It's okay. You, you missing anything? Let me know if you're missing anything. Honestly, Lord, we got what? Got more than enough, huh? In fact, you got an abundance. Huh? More than amply supplying, huh? Yeah, I, I really don't need this. Yeah, there you go. And I remember, boy, it was just like tattooed on my head that, man, God takes care of you. It's not the amount. You always come away with, gosh, I've got more than I, I need. i got more than I need. I have, as if what he said, I am amply supplied. This is that last building block for us as Christians. So if this power that comes from the providences that we see, kind of like the, the branch with the vine, right? You can do nothing unless you abide in the vine. And that power that comes, I mean, think about it. You're absolutely worth zero apart from the vine. You're just going to be gathered to burn. And you get your power from him. That power is going to issue forth into having this clamping down on this unchanging promise from God that what you will have that fragrant aroma to be able to offer as a sacrifice, that investment that will be to your benefit. So if you've got possessions, like Paul's going to say in first Timothy six, you don't grab onto them. You hold them like this. Asking the Lord, Lord, how would you get, have me give whatever it is? Here's your question. When you say, Lord, how much? Don't ever put a number to it. Don't ever put a percentage to it. 
This is the this is the answer to how much you should give. Whatever is going to free my heart to worship you with a fragrant aroma. You show me what it's going to take for me to worship. For me to invest. Because I got everything I've all. I've got all, all my needs are met. Yeah, but if you, you give that away, you won't have that. I'm not thinking that. I got to think in terms of worship. <laughs> not think in terms of percentages, in terms of amounts and things. But, well, how am I going to pay this bill, pay that? Well, if you think in those things, guess what you're not thinking? I'm not thinking about God and worship. It. I've already gotten, I'm falling back into the first section of chapter four with an insecure mind. I'm being anxious now. That's why the first section comes before the second section. So if you're going to be content, you got to deal with anxiety. And remember, all this coalesces on your holiness without which no man sees the Lord. This isn't optional stuff. Overcoming anxiety isn't one of those little white collar sins that it'd be kind of nice if you could kind of do and kind of get your life in order. It's not one of those little things. You can't follow the Lord with a heart full of anxiety and a heart full of discontent. You'll die. You'll leave your bones in the wilderness. Those people were discontent because they were anxious. They didn't know where their next meal was coming from, where they're going to get water. So those giants in the land or whatever, biting their nails about anxiety leads to discontentment. What's in the inside anxiety comes out on the outside, discontentment. You hear it in the murmuring, the grumbling, the complaining. So if you're contented on the inside, you got you might have butterflies in your stomach, as they say, but they're flying formation. <laughs> as long as they fly in formation, you're okay if they're in your stomach. You don't have anxiety anymore. You have concerns. And the Lord's in sovereign control of those concerns. And I've given everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving unto the Lord. And then that will bleed into this whole idea of, Lord, please make me content with my lot right now. I don't know the future, and that's okay. Help me to worship. See, worship the first building block. You've got me here. I've got this power from you, this great power to serve you. Like it says in Colossians 1.11, strengthen with all power. He says, this is the power right here. I own all things, as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, whether Paul, Apollos, you own all things, future, present, whatever. You own it. If I want to give it to you, I can give it to you. You know that. Don't you know that? See, you're walking by faith. You're right. There's no reason why, number one, I shouldn't worship you. But number two, help me to worship contented. And then the godliness is going to take off and go off the page. It'll go different way different heights than you've ever seen so the question is are you content this morning content with your lot in life can you say you know my lines have fallen in pleasant places it might be romans 8 28 you know all things work together for good they say all things are, are good it says all things work together for good i'm gonna leave that working together up to you lord i'll let you do the tapestry and the cross stitching on these bad things that's in my life but you know something i am not going to be ruled by the bad things uh, these bad things in my life and they're bad and they're evil and they're whatever else. And they're exposing my weakness and my character and yada, yada, yada. Cause me to bite my nails or cause me to be discontent. And a lot of it has to do because you're not as sanctified as you want to be. You're discontent about that. Not just discontent because I don't have enough money to meet the bills, but discontent because I don't have a, enough grace in my life to act like the Christian I want to be. And I'm mad about that. And I'm discontent about that. You're going to have to let the Lord do it, as he says in the first chapter with the single mind. This is the Lord's work. He does it at his rate. He started a work. He'll complete it. Help me to be content with what you're doing in my life right now. Think of the opposite of the providence of God. <clears throat> Everything's against me. 
right? You look at not providence, it's such God's providing for something. You're going to get offended. It's your fault. All these problems, everything around me providentially is bad and it should be changed so I can have a better life. I mean, there's the world right there in a nutshell. That's all they know. When it comes to the, the power of God, oh, it's my power and I can't help myself. I'm addicted. I'm constantly doing this and serving that. Everything overpowers me. Or instead of owning all things, I have nothing, got no resources, just no use, I'll never change, I'll always be this way. All that kind of despair and fatalism is ridiculous. Either life's unfair, it's God's fault, or, you know, I hate my life, I don't have any power, I'm totally impotent, I can't do anything right. I have a fatalistic outcome for the future. All that's going to breed discontentment. You become a Christian, all that's going to go out the window. God's going to train you in contentment. And you're going to understand the providence is his providing for you. His power is going to be in you. I'm well content with weaknesses, Paul says. And I will do what? And I have a future that I can look forward to in the promises of God, knowing that he's going to change me and my heart's going to be more content. I can guarantee you this. You're going to be more content tomorrow than you are today. You know why? Because you're going to be more sanctified tomorrow than you are today. That's just how it works. And if you're, to be, if you're going to be more sanctified tomorrow, you're going to be more content tomorrow because that's going to aid your sanctification. So that's the plan. That's the program. And you're going to be content with what God gives you. And you're going to be content because it's going to come through subtraction. Ouch. It's okay. We're going to watch God be glorified in your, in your life and in your lack. And while you're kind of biting your nails, getting a little anxious about that, and we're going to get into the first part of chapter four. Remember, not be anxious about anything. Remember, you're a Christian and your number one heart's desire is to see Christ glorified. Or you're not a Christian. And many times to do that, it's going to come through subtraction. And you're going to get the rebound of contentment. And you're going to realize, wow, Christ is mine all in all. Because this was taken out of my life. And I feel like I can still live my life and go on and actually be better because he is my sufficiency. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Christ, Father, is all we need. David even knew this in Psalm 23, that you, Lord, are our shepherd. I shall not want. I shall not lack. Whether it's green grass or quiet waters or craggy rocks, your rod and your staff is always within an arm's reach to pull us close to you in communion. We'll never lack that surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. We know these things, Lord. But to get them into our hearts where <clears throat> the fire bells and the fire alarms go off and the anxiety levels rise and the discontentment's not too far from our lips, Father. We, we're asking for that, that sanctification that we know that we must have to be able to be contented with our lot, to be not just resolved to accept what's been given to us, Father, not to be Passive like that, but to be active and to worship you and to go forward 
and to say, I will praise you. I will worship you. Like Jacob, if I got to lean on my staff because my hip's out of place from wrestling with an angel, then so be it. If I can't walk again or I can't do this again or I'm limited in what I used to be able to do instead of crying in our beers, Lord, about not able to do what we used to be able to do in our youths. Help us, Father, to give you a fragrant aroma of the sacrifice of contentment, of worship, of satisfaction in saying, Christ is my portion, my all in all. What more do I need? For it's in his great name we pray. Amen.